Okay, welcome to the latest Downtown Den, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be uh, in the company today of, if he's not the most positive man on the planet, then uh, I'm yet to meet the one who is. Uh, <laughs> this guy is the guy who you can walk into a room feeling as though you've had the shittiest week uh, ever, and you'll walk out the room, having had a conversation with him, uh, nine feet tall. You're that sort of character. It's Michael Finnegan. Business coach extraordinaire. Michael, it's great to have you. Oh, it's great to be here, Frank. It's a real privilege. You know, it's all, we don't get enough time together. It's always a privilege to sit down and catch up with you anytime. Yeah, you and I don't really, do, do we? We, well, we? Very occasionally. We probably manage to grab lunch once a year. We've known uh, each other too long, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, probably. Take yeah, it for granted. Yeah, that's, that's the trouble. That's probably part of the problem, isn't it? That's 20 years since we met. Yeah, remind me of that story. It's a good story, actually, isn't it? You are pleased, no. <laughs> you mean the story when you came to my box at Bolton Wanderers with the Everton crew, with you and certain Mr Hatton, and drank the whole place dry of Guinness, beer, sherry, whatever they would serve you? That one, you mean? It was a great day. I still wake up like from nightmares about that day. <laughs> yeah, because I think the story behind that, Michael, is that you had the box at Bolton in lieu of payment, because you'd actually gone to work for Sam Allardyce, hadn't you? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so we'd been working with Sam since 1998. And I think it would be, what would be the game when Gaza played? It might be the game when Gaza played for Everton. Yeah. And he scored, he didn't score many goals for Everton. He scored an absolute cracker <laughs> at, 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 uh, at the Reebok, we'd have yeah. called it, wouldn't we? Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. And that, that, was, uh, that was where it was. And, and uh, what was happening was Sam had asked me to go and work with him, but didn't have, originally, when, uh, when they started, didn't have any money at all. So the first season, we worked for free, right? Um, show me if your stuff's any good. So the stuff was brilliant. We nearly got promoted. We got to the FA Cup semi-final and the League Cup semi-final, beaten by Aston Villa and Tranmere at Wembley. Uh, Aston Villa on penalties. So it was great first season. Second season, still didn't have any money. Said he would pay me for every point uh, they got. And he ended up paying me a fortune <laughs> because we got more points than he thought we would get. We got promoted in the second season. And then in the third season, they were going to pay me for every... This was the first season of the Premier League. They were going to pay me for every point above 40 that we got because they thought they were going to get relegated. <laughs> they ended up paying me a fortune because we got like 49 points or something. And, you know, we were on like 10 grand a point. Or what. We were on a lot of money a point. But as part of it, they said, ah, you'll have to have a box. <laughs> <laughs> and as much alcohol as Frank McKenna can drink. So, that, <laughs> so it was a part contra. And I tell you, you know what, Frank, seriously, it was fantastic. Because what we were able to do, you know, if we were playing Arsenal, we were able to invite loads of our clients from London up for the day. Yeah. So in the end, they did us a massive favour. Yeah. But you did more damage to our reputation and bar bill than any other single <laughs> visitor we've ever had. Hey, I'll tell you, my reputation's well earned, mate. Uh, oh, Frank, <laughs> that game, by the way, that game where Gaza played at half time. So I was nipping between the dressing room and the, and the box with you guys to make sure you weren't dismantling it. And, uh, and I was in the dressing room at half time, and we had, we had Kevin Nolan playing for us then, 
and we had uh, Mike, who was the center, the big center forward, Michael Ricketts playing for mm. us. And they were kids, right? They were both like 21 or something. And Kevin Nolan, across the dressing room at halftime, said, Michael, Michael, is, is Gaza talking to you? And Michael Ricketts said, he's talking to me all the time. <laughs> and and Ke Kevin said, what's he saying? And he said, he's just telling me how good I am. Like, <laughs> like brilliant run, nice touch. You know, I wish you were playing for us. What a player you are. Kevin Nolan, Gazza had tapped Kevin Nolan on the arse three times and said, Kevin, lovely pass, right? And he was bigging our lads up. They were loving it, you know. And that's how good Gazza was. He was felt like he was so good. He didn't need to intimidate you. Almost he wanted you to have a positive experience playing against him. And he ran the show that day. Yes. And I think you were 2-0 up. Yeah. And brought him off, yeah. I'm going to say, at 2-0 yeah. up. He scored a cracking goal. And we scored two goals virtually in injury time at the end and salvaged a draw. Yeah. And when Gaza came off, he lifted his boots to the linesman and the linesman started checking his studs when he was coming <laughs> off the field. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> and the Bolton fans just were just... A, he got almost a standing ovation. So yeah. that was the first day that we met. Fantastic day. Yeah. Uh, lives long in the memory, as they say. Yeah, and a, and a friendship has uh, has developed since, and and it's been great to be able to work with you uh, over that twenty year period. And of course, you've, you've been very kind enough to to give your time to to the downtown members. And again, as I mentioned earlier, you know there is never a time when we've done an event with you where people haven't just gone out of the room thinking they can take on the world. And <coughs> what well, do you do, mate? You know that is what you do, and I've not seen yeah. anyone. Uh, genuinely, you know this is shitless. I don't have to blow smoke uh, up your backside. You don't need it. But the best in the business, as far as I'm concerned, and and we could sit here for three, four, five hours talking about the career successes you've had. Um, but I was saying to you offline that we've had a phenomenal amount of uh, interest in anything that we've done relating to sport, right. uh, and so um, you know you've been. Uh, with Belton Wanderers, you, your first high-profile client, of course, and I love this story, so please repeat it, was Jimmy White, the snooker <laughs> champion, who was Making worse than Frank McKenna. I'm going to be twitching by the end of this call. <laughs> he made you like a, look like Andy Pandy, you know. <laughs> Tell us the Jimmy White tale. Oh, God, blimey. Let me remember this. Jimmy White. So, so what happened was he was in the one of my mate, one of my colleagues was a snooker fan and he was a big Jimmy White fan. And there was an article in the Sunday Times in February. I think it was the 16th of February, 1998. And it was saying Jimmy White's life's over. And I'm going to run out of fingers now, but it said he's got alcoholism. He's an addicted gambler. He's taking cocaine. Uh, he's bankrupt. Um, uh, he's lost his world ranking. Um, he's got testicular cancer, he's taking Prozac for depression, his wife's kicked him out of the house, that's eight fingers, there'll be others. Um, and my mate, spontaneously over the weekend when he read this story on Sunday, he, he spent the day with me and I was telling him about this thing I was studying, 1998, and how excited I was. And, uh, and he went home that night, having spent the afternoon with me, saw this article, went to walk the dog at 10 o'clock at night, wrote Jimmy White a letter saying, Dear Jimmy, I love you. My mate Finnegan will sort you out. This is his phone number. Please call him. And he wrote me phone number on this letter. And he posted, all he knew was that Jimmy, imagine that's before the internet, 98, right? So he didn't know his address. And he put Jimmy White, care of Barry Hearn, Matt True, 
Essex. That's all he put. And he stuck it in the post. So he phoned me on the Monday morning. He'd been walking the dog at Sunday night at half ten and posted it. And he phoned me on the Monday and said, look, nothing will come of this, but I'd just better tell you I did something really stupid last night. And he told me all about it. And I remember laughing, saying, Andrew, I'm so grateful that you think, you know, so much of what I'm doing that you would do that. Um, obviously nothing will come. And on the Tuesday night, three, two, the following day, Jimmy White called me on my, on my mobile phone, uh, on my office phone, sorry, and said, can I speak to Michael Finnegan? I thought it was the local radio doing a wind-up. And I said, hang on, I'll see if he's in. Who is it? He says, Jimmy White. And I said to him, I can't get him at the moment. Give me your number and I'll get him to phone you back. And his number, whatever it was, 0468 or whatever, was 147147. And I knew then it was definitely him. So I said, hang on a minute, I'll see if I can get him. And I put the phone down and then I came back on like somebody else. And spoke to him. And he didn't know. He didn't know I'd done that to him. And, um, and he said, look, your mate's written me this letter. It's really kind. It's, it makes you sound like a really nice guy. Can we have a cup of coffee? And I just started working in this field and I've been doing research for six years, but I had, you know, virtually no clients. Um, and he said to me, can you come down and see me tomorrow? And I looked at my diary. There was nothing in the diary for the Wednesday, nothing in for the Thursday, nothing in for the Friday. And I said to him, well, I can move a couple of things around, <laughs> you know, shopping with the missus, you know. Taking the kids to school. <laughs> and I drove to Isha and met him for a cup of coffee in Isha. And I used to work for Societe Generale and they had the head office in Isha. So I knew the coffee shop, uh, which he was amazed at. And we just hit it off. And then, you know, I, I, I remember saying to him, let's just, let's just, you know, he said to me, let's do it. Let's do it to me. And I thought, I haven't had any customers yet. I phoned my mate who wrote the letter and said, hey, I said, I wanted either an alcoholic or a drug addict or somebody who was bankrupt, not somebody who had all of them and a couple of other things as well. You know, it's like, it was the first baptism of fire from hell. Um, and, you know, despite all that and all the things we've heard about him, he was a really intelligent thinker. He was snooker through and through. Um, didn't write, he can't read and write, so he couldn't write any notes and I did all the writing. Um, and he put into practice every single thing we did. He won his qualifier for the World Championships because he's world number 50, he had to qualify, smashed his qualifiers. And then he's drawn against Stephen Hendry, the world number one. And you think, oh, we just needed a break there, didn't we, to get the number 48 in the world. And, uh, and, and we played the number one. He was favourite for the title. He'd never beaten him in seven years of playing him. And I always tell people, went to the Crucible, I was at the Crucible, and it was the first to 10 and the score went 1-0, 2-0, 3-0, 4-0, 5-0, 6-0, 7-0. And the alcoholic drug addict world number 50 was beating the machine 7-0, live on the BBC. Won the game 10-4. And then he went off the table. And when they asked him how he'd done it, he said, I'm working with a bloke called Michael Finnegan. He sorted my head out. <laughs> He's unblocked my drains. <laughs> and that was it then. Frank, seriously, once that happened, when the, when the Wigan story came out, you said, I sent him a text yesterday saying, hey, remember, because you sent me a text to congratulate him. I said, hey, remember, you started all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it hadn't been for you, none of the other stuff that's happened to us in the 20 years since would have happened, Frank, um, because it was all down to him. He was, you know, so generous with his praise. Um, he got to the quarterfinals that year. He ended up the season as world number five from world number 50. Um, and he's, I mean, his books, he's written a couple of books. I mean, his books, he tells the whole story. Um, he says, I saved his life. You know, it was beautiful. Mm. 
And, and the following day, I got a phone call from Chubby Chandler, who was managing Clark and Westwood and McGinley, all these golfers. And he said to me, does your stuff work in golf? And I said, Chubby, I didn't know it worked in snooker till last night. How do I know? <laughs> I didn't know, but I'll have a go with you. Well, he said, right, that'll do for me. Come on. And next minute, I'm working with Darren Clark and Paul McGinley, who ends up captaining the Ryder Cup team and winning the Ryder Cup, you know. Mm. And then Bolton Wanderers and all of us. And, and then when I was writing to people, you know, like you, for example, saying, look, these are my clients. Well, you're going to you're gonna have a cup of coffee with me, aren't you? Absolutely. And of course, when I got in front of you, I could really do it, you know. And I got, that's how I got my corporate clients because we are 99% corporate. We're not sport. Sports is a, we've got the best sporting CV of all time and it's a sidelight. It's hobby. <laughs> We're 99% business, you know. We don't do sports. It's a bit of fun for me, a bit of release for me because I'm a frustrated Everton player. That's the reality. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? So for me to hold the FA Cup, to hold the Open Championship, me, I couldn't have done that, you know, but I can do it now. So it's a sideline, mate, really, but lovely to tell those stories because without them, it wouldn't have happened. Mm. And None let, of it would have happened. Now, let me just put this into a bit of context because, of course, you know, nowadays, snooker is not as prevalent on the TV. You know, we, no. we have wall-to-wall sport now, don't we? we can yeah, we do. Choose. You can watch football 24-7 if you like. But back then, the BBC, one of its prime time shows, programmes, was the snooker championships. Yeah. So it, it's not as if Jimmy White is talking to just an audience of snooker buffs. He's talking to the whole country. Oh, so, yeah. So what a marketing platform that well, was. Well, Frank, Frank, when, when, he was, um, when, when he was beating Hendry, right, the 7-0 score, over, it was an overnight match. It was a two-day match. And overnight, it was 8-1 to Jimmy. And I was driving back from Sheffield across the M62. I stopped at Hartshead Moor and I was on cloud nine and I went to pay for some petrol. And I said to these guys, excuse me, mate, the guy behind the till, I said to me, you don't know what the snooker score is, dear, tonight. And he turned around to me and said, do you mean Jimmy White? And I said, yeah. He said, which planet have you been on? Where have you been? <laughs> yeah. And I just, and I walked out thinking, oh my God, it's got, you know, already it's getting through. Yeah. Frank, 13.7 million people watched that game. That's your point, isn't it? Yeah. 13.7 million people. Yeah. Everybody knew our name. I was in 40 newspaper articles within a week. Yeah, yeah. You know, what a launch for a company. Yeah. And that's why I said to Jimmy White, you started this, mate. If it wasn't for you, I couldn't have done this. Because yeah. once you got Jimmy White, everybody loved him. You know, he was everybody, the people's champion, they called him. So everybody loved him. And when I was writing letters to chief execs, they were saying to the secretaries, hey, if he phones to follow up that letter, I'll have a coffee with him. Yeah, yeah. And, and they were easy. You can deal with an alcoholic drug addict. You can deal with managers in a company. Let's be honest. <laughs> well, maybe not, actually. <laughs> yeah. Depends who they are, doesn't it? Really? Yeah. yeah, I've seen some who were just basket cases who make Jimmy White look like Andy Bandy. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, that's the reality. So it's massive for us. Yeah. Now, as you say, Michael, uh, we mentioned, you know, you and I met at Bolton Wanderers. Now, <laughs> listen... We've had conversations about uh, we've had conversations about Big Sam, Sam Allardyce, uh, because you know he came to Everton, uh, and I think you know the reaction of, of Evertonians, myself included, horrified. Well, we were underwhelmed, if, if I yeah, could put it that of way. Of course. And, and you know, if if I met the guy, I'm sure I'd get on with it. Listen, Peter Reid loves him to bits, and yeah. Peter Reid is one of the most genuine guys you could ever meet in your life. So. 
Sam must have something because two of my favourite people, you and Reedy, have both told me what a great man Sam Allardyce is. But yeah. without getting into the Everton stuff, which obviously <laughs> didn't go well for anybody, I don't think. <laughs> Although I think he probably ended up with a few bob out of it. So. I think his bank manager was happy. Yeah, absolutely. But you always said to me two things, actually, Michael. Firstly, he was a man before his time in terms of some of the methods that he adopted at Belton Wanderers. Yeah. And secondly, he was the best football manager that you've worked with. Yeah, um, yeah. So tell us about your time <clears throat> at, at well, Belton. Well, well what, what he was, Frank, the reason I say that is that Sam was, he's, when, you know, when I first started, I, I did some assessments on his leadership profile. as the perfect profile for a leader. And what I mean by that is he's very assertive. So he's very decisive and very clear about what he wants. He doesn't have any punches. He's prepared to be unpopular. He's prepared to be confrontational. But he doesn't shirk the hard decision. You know, he's only thinking of the right, of the right thing. So he's a really tough, strong character. He's a fantastic social animal. He's very sociable. So he will kick you up the arse and five minutes later put his arm around you and tell you you're the best thing since in sliced bread. And he'll make you believe it. So he had that ability, therefore, to be cruel, to be kind, but then to say to you, hey, you know very well, you wouldn't be here if you weren't the man for this. You know. And when he says that, you know he's telling you the truth, right? So he had that, he could be good cop and bad cop, Sam. Now, you don't meet many people, Frank, who can do that. Yeah. And he could do it. He was very fast moving. And what I mean by that is, you come up with an idea, you go and see him, he says, get on with it. And he was one of those managers who, leaders, sorry, who you asked forgiveness rather than permission. He didn't want you to ask permission. Go and try it. He had your back. He support, you knew he had your back. You knew he would support you. And, you know, but bear in mind, when you're talking about being supported by a guy, when he's talking about these multimillionaire footballers, and he would kick their asses before he'd kick yours. So he had your back as a boss. And he was just very decisive and a brilliant decision maker, brilliant thinker, brilliant analyst, brilliant strategist, brilliant conceptually, uh, visionary, um, bold, you know. So when he took over Bolton Wanderers, they were fourth bottom. Colin Todd got the sack. Mm. Bolton Wanderers were fourth bottom of the championship. <clears throat> and he was saying to us, I'll have us in the Premier League within two years. And, you know, you could see people thinking, how awesome is that? You know, it was fantastic. And everything that he did, from that moment on, when you were fourth bottom, if you'd have walked in there, you could have easily thought you were in a premiership club. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So he didn't wait to behave like a premiership manager to get in the premiership. He behaved like a premiership club when we were fourth bottom of the league. Yeah. And it wasn't long, you know, one month, two months, three months, four months, people start sticking their chests out. People started sticking the shoulders back saying, hey, this is a proper football club. And of course, what he was brilliant at, which I loved more than anything, Frank, was he didn't recruit footballers, he recruited men. Mm. He recruited character and people and team players and people who would sacrifice and people who would gel. You know, he had a way of doing it. He had a way of sending a team out on a field that was beautifully balanced in terms of characters. Mm. You know, we always had, when we did a lot of leadership assessment, we never took the field at Bolton with less than three leaders on the field. Everybody thinks everybody's a leader in football. They're not. And in rugby, they're not, but you needed three. And Sam would pick a lesser footballer for a higher calibre leader. Mm. And they would, he would send a team out and, just, and you'd just think, we'll be all right today. We're old and we're knackered, 
but we'll be all right because he understood leadership. You know, he was just brilliant. So he gave you a lot of rope. He gave you a lot of freedom. He was always there if you needed him. And I mean, how can you work for a better leader than that? And then, of course, I mean, my last season at Bolton, at one point, we were third in the Premier League at Christmas. Third. Like, and he said to, he said to Phil Gartside, he's dead now, Phil. He said to Phil Gartside, if you'll buy me this centre forward, we'll finish third. And it was Edin Dzeko. And he went to Manchester City. Uh, yeah. What about that? Yeah. And that's the calibre. And, you know, if you were a player and you came to Bolton Wanderers, Sam would paint this picture of the future of where it was going to be. And he'd make sure Nat Lofthouse was there. Mm. And Nat Lofthouse would like, people would just go, oh my God, you know, Nat Lofthouse. And Roy Hartle would be there with his Bolton Wanderers blazer on. And they would sell you this dream of where the club was going, you know. And you've got to remember, Frank, at the end, we had like European Cup winners. We had Fernando Hierro playing for Bolton Wanderers. <laughs> and that was Sam selling them the dream. Now, I tell you what we need at the moment, mate, we need some visionary leaders, don't we? Big time. With, with some ability to paint a glorious picture of the future to get us to believe in it. And that was Sam Allardyce. I will defend him to the hilt. And I've worked with some great people. Yeah. But blimey, what an... Or, and, you know, when he got the England job, I was with the Ryder Cup team in America and I was texting him from America saying, well done. And then 24 hours later, he's blown it, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, but fantastic guy. Yeah. Fantastic. And I have to say, I mean, as I say, I didn't want him as Everton, but I would have been interested to see how he performed at, at England. Um, yeah. The left field appointment. Uh, yeah. And, you know, over the years, I've always felt England have missed out on characters. So, you know, there was Cluffy, obviously. I thought yeah. Terry Venable's tenure was, was cut short unnecessarily. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. You know, if you look at the Prime Minister's uh, shenanigans and record, then Terry was a bloody, uh, he was an angel, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. He and, was. You know, later we had Harry Redknapp. I yeah. That was unlucky as well. It would have been great. It would have been good, I think, to, to have seen Sam in the job for, for a period of time. <clears throat> yeah, he got and, on. And With, Frank, you know, when, when, when Sam went to Everton, I probably said this to you, you know, you're in the throes of relegation. And I remember saying to people, you won't get relegated. Yeah, yeah. You won't get relegated. Now, when you're eighth in the Premier League and he's not playing attractive football, you might want to get rid of him, fine. But, you know, I saw that at Blackburn Rovers. A year later, they were relegated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So it's all, Blackburn Rovers, eighth in the Premier League under Sam. You know, West Ham United, when it, I remember West Ham fans saying, we've just appointed Sam Allardyce. I said, all oh, right. He said, will we get promoted? I said, yeah. Put your house on it. Yeah. Put your house on it. And I said, you know what will happen then? You'll be sixth in the Premier League. You'll sack him. <laughs> yeah. You know, so everybody's the same. And listen, what, what was all the difference with Everton? And I think the difference was West Ham. Same at West Ham. They had this school of science phrase at Everton, didn't they? You know, and it, they always wanted to play that beautiful, silky football uh, that we all remember from the 1970s. And that was probably, I'd never seen Sam play that. So I wasn't saying he could do that. I'm pretty sure he could have done it with England, you know, because you've got all the talent there, haven't you? And I was sure he could do it, just let them go and play and bring the steelies what he would have brought to England. You know what? You wouldn't have thrown away a lead in the last minute playing for Sam Allardyce because he would have just burned your kit, you know. Your, 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 your E. Saint Laurent clothes would have been in the bin when you came in and he would have made you walk home to England. So you weren't going to lose a lead. And he would have had that quality, would have been brilliant. But it never quite worked at Everton because he probably didn't have the budget. You know, now he might have been able to bring in some great players. We'd never know. Um, I never saw him with that. But but you knew he was going to get you to eighth in the Premier League. And yeah. he did it 
He did it with everybody. He's done it. He's done it with everybody. Yeah, he, he's got that. Yeah. And, and you know, he always says himself, doesn't he, that uh, if his name was Aladiseski, <laughs> he'd be managing Arsenal or Chelsea or whatever. Yeah, it's a yeah. shame he never got that chance to just go somewhere with a budget and do it. You know, because that he'll never have that ticked off now. Yeah. But I think with England, he would have been every game. You know, would have been winning two 0 and. You know, I saw Jack Charlton interviewed the other day um, from, from when he was Republic of Ireland saying, I, I believe people don't like the football we play, but I noticed the last four games that in Republic of Ireland have all been sellouts. So yeah. somebody must like it. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And Sam would have been like that. You'd have been a bit more Mourinho, wasn't he, about him, Sam, than, yes. uh, you know, than maybe a flair manager. But I think he would have won stuff. Can't prove it. But, he, but what I'm saying is, as a leader, Frank, he was great to work for. And if you look, I mean, you say to any Bolton fan, would you have him, you know, what, what, what are the best years as a Bolton fan? Yeah. Those five years when, when you know, people used to, Ars, Arsene Wenger used to come. He was terrified. You could see it in him. He didn't want to come and play Bolton at the Reebok. You know what I mean? And, and to be involved in that was fantastic. And a little bit, of course, my then nine years at Everton, Moisey did the same thing there. He built it into a, a fortress, probably never going to be silky football, but, you know, we finished in the Champions League and third and fourth and, I was just saying to somebody, I went to speak at a conference in Tenerife, right? And just as I went on stage at this conference, news came through that Everton had beaten Liverpool 1-0 in the derby. Lee Carson had scored the winner to go top of the Premier League. <laughs> and I was speaking, I was just going on stage at a conference and I went on stage and said, does anybody know the uh, derby score? And somebody shout, Everton have won 1-0, mate. I was like, oh. Well, let me tell you a story about that. <laughs> you know, they were heady. They were so they were great days. They were great days, and love to still bring, be involved. You know. Yeah, I want to bring you on to Everton actually because um, I've been talking earlier to uh, another legend uh, alongside the Mister Finnegans of this world, <laughs> uh, a guy called Bob Latcher, who you will remember oh, from the. Oh seven. wow, he was a he was a proper player. Well, what a player, and you know, phenomenal goal scoring record wherever he went. Um, now, when he was at Everton, we were reflecting on his career. And, of course, it was more than that period of time where Liverpool were managed by Bob Paisley. And they literally yeah. beat all comers. Uh, they yeah. were a phenomenal team. They had Keegan and Toshak. And then they followed that up uh, with another double act that weren't bad called Dag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were all right. Yeah. Yeah, and as an Evertonian, you know, head in yeah. there. But nonetheless, um, you know, Everton used to go toe-to-toe with them. We... we invariably got a, got a goal a straw to be honest Liverpool Everton derbies were often nil-nil there was that yeah. famous game you might recall Michael where Andy King stuck one in from about 25 yards oh I do the game he's getting interviewed on the pitch and the copper drags him off the pitch won't let the television crew interview him and that was a great game now Bob Bob said something that I thought would chime with you he Go said on. that in 74-75 Right. Everton had Gordon Lee as the manager rather than Billy Bingham. He thinks oh, wow. he would have won the league because the psychology would have been different. Really? He went on to say, we, we basically would have won the league and we got beat by Carlisle twice. And Carlisle were relegated. No, you're joking. That's how close he was to win the championship. Oh, wow. And, and what had... was he saying was the difference then? Up here, mate. Mentality. And that's that's wow. the point I'm going to make to you about Everton, but under Moisey. Because, you see, mm. I love David Moyes at Everton Football Club. You know, he came in right. at a time when we've been watching Walter Smith, who was very dour in terms of his football and his play. 
And yeah. I, th I think the best Walter did with an Everton team was 12th in the Premier League. Moyes, he obviously right. came in, young manager, and started to develop that team spirit with people like yourself supporting him in the background, of course, and really mm. started that, you know, the people's club, we're all in this together. Oh, yeah. That fight, that grit and that determination. And it took Everton to a point. But the thing I'm going to say to you, Michael, now, is that the thing that I often think about David Moyes is that he was actually, because of the politics of the club, always in that position where he was saying, we'll do well to finish in yeah. the top six. We'll do well if we... <clears throat> when I listen to your story about Jimmy White and Bolton Wanderers, and we'll come on to Wigan Athletic, it's <laughs> all about having a thought that is limitless. Absolutely, okay? absolutely. And if you're not getting that from your manager, and we never quite did with Moisey, I wonder whether that's what stopped Everton from winning the trophy under the years that he was there. <clears throat> I, I, think it, I think it probably did. Yeah, I think it probably did, Frank. And what you've got, I mean, you know, if we had, like you say, we could have five hours and I could, I mean, what you've got to realise, Frank, that I've, I've been privileged in, in my time to work with mentor a guy who won the Ryder Cup for Europe, uh, mentor two guys who won the Rugby League Club World Cup, one for Russell Crowe and one for Wigan uh, Warriors, uh, mentor a guy who won the Cricket World Cup for India. You know, so I've, I've been with around a lot of high-level sports elite managers in all these different sports. So from all over the world, you know, from India, from South Africa, from Australia, from here. So I've seen it on a level. And they're all quite extrovert, but they're all very decisive, very strong-willed, very decisive. David was very cautious, very, very cautious, right? He was very humble, which is a beautiful, you know, none of the other guys I would say were particularly humble, you know, so, so, so you didn't particularly like these other guys but you were just fiercely impressed with what, with the strength and the vision that they brought. David was always just a lovely, genuine family man, sincere guy. Thought, if you, if, if you were the owner of the club, David thought that money was his. He spent it like it was his, you know. Um, and, and that humility, I think, bought him a lot with, with Bill and it, and it brought the club up to a level. It was always going to hold him back a little bit because he was, I guess, a pragmatist and a realist, you know, and he could never get his head. David's biggest fear going to Manchester United was about communicating with a billion fans. You know, this is a private man. When, when, when I knew David, David lived in a house that was 100 acres. Think about that. 100 acres. And he... Imagine it being a square plot. Guess where his house was? On the square plot. Smack <laughs> in the middle of the 100 acres. You needed to be Dr. Livingston to find the house. Never mind anything else. Now, what does that tell you about a psychological profile? It tells you about an introvert. And listen, if you're going to be a successful football manager, you're going to have some extroversion about you and slam that dressing room door and throw the teacups around and say, we're going to do this. <clears throat> and Davey was always too humble for that, I felt. <clears throat> and I was, you know, I, listen, I spent nine years trying to coach that out of him. Sometimes when you're coaching people, these, these behavioural patterns are hardwired, Frank. You know, if I, if I was to coach you and say, right, Frank, I want us to spend the next two years and turn you into a cautious introvert, mm. um, you might be wasting your money. 
You know what I mean? And I might be wasting my time because I'm not sure that's possible. Do you get what I'm saying? So what what David needed was somebody alongside him in a footballing sense. I mean, I don't mean me, but I mean in a footballing sense, in the dugout with the footballing pedigree to say, David, let's get that guy off. David, let's go and see Bob Latchford and tempt him out every time. You know, somebody with some of that arrogance and, you know, do you get, get what I'm trying to say? Yeah, and and we, we could never find one. We never found one. What we found was a lot of people who were good and professional and all that, but nobody who had that, that charisma about them. To re, like we had at Bolton, to say to Yuri Jorkaya, I know you've just won the World Cup, but come and play for Bolton. You know what I mean? <laughs> if we could have had Sam and David together, that would have been one hell of a team because they were yin and yang, you know. So David was a brilliant judge of a player. He was a brilliant... Baz Rathbone, you know, I used to spend a lot of time with Mick Rathbone. Have you ever interviewed Mick? You need to interview Baz. Obviously, You should interview. Baz is a complete... Baz wears a straitjacket about 18 hours a day. He's a certifiable lunatic, right? (laughs) But he was a brilliant physio for us. And he said to me once on a coach somewhere, he said, Mick, if I ever had to have somebody to pick a team to save my life, he said... It would only ever be David Moyes that I would do. So what we had was a brilliant tactician, strategist, you know, but, you know, a humble man. Yeah. And you need a bit, and you're football managers, you need a bit of, I mean, look at them. Look at Klopp, you know, Mr. Personality. Look at Mourinho. You know, they've got some arrogance about them. Yeah. And, and David's a lovely human being. Lovely human being. Maybe too nice in that sense. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I hope that's a good answer for people listening, but it's an, it's an honest answer. It's an yeah, honest answer. Yeah, no, I think it is a good answer, mate. And, I, and, I, and as I say, I think when I was listening to Bob Latchford this morning, you know, and he was, there's clearly an awful lot of frustration in the guy because they did have a great team. They came very close on a number of occasions, FA Cups, League Cups. And, and again, yeah. the other point he made was, you know, if we'd have won just one, then the mentality yeah. of the team changes. And, and therefore, yeah, yeah. Be successful on that basis. And how many footballers, how many people in sport you hear saying, yeah, well, once I won that one, I knew then that I could go on and just carried on winning. It became a habit. So just as much yeah. losing and finishing second and third and getting beat by Liverpool becomes habitual, yeah. winning does. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's what you've seen with Klopp and his Liverpool team. They just go on and win because they go out thinking, well, we're going to win. Yeah, exactly. I don't, n- nobody can win this game, but if anybody can, you can. It's yeah. kind of his approach, isn't it? And it's lovely that, isn't it? What, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what, what I like about them. I like, I like the unsung heroes. I like the James Milners and the Robertsons, you know, and, the, and the, who's that central midfield player who's the captain, Henderson. Yeah. You know, yeah. They're the heartbeat of your team, those. That's why you're 3-0 down against Barcelona and you can beat them. Yeah. You know, not just because of the talent, but because of that attitude. And that's what Bob Latchford was talking about. And Reedy, of course, was full of that. Oh. We know Reedy was a brilliant player, but Reedy was a leader. That Everton team of the 80s, it was full of leaders. And that was, that's what makes the difference. When the chips are down, you just need some of those with that swagger and that confidence, don't you? Say, hey, give me the ball. <laughs> Michael Jordan once said, when the game is on the line, the big player wants the ball. Yeah, yeah. How true's that? You know what I mean? And you only need a couple of them and it starts to change, doesn't it? It starts to change. And I hope it changes now, Frank. I, I hope, you know, Everton at last gets some of that glory back. But if they're going to do it, they need a bit of that swagger in the, in the backroom team and a bit of swagger on the field. Give the ball to me. 
this is my moment. You know, some of that. Let's have some of that back. Yeah. Well, I can't imagine many people with a better CV than Mr. Ancelotti. And as I was saying to, uh, to the lads at awesome. the room and very kindly invited me on to, to do something with them a few days ago. If, if Ancelotti can't do it, I think I might pack it. Yeah, give up. Yeah, just give up. And you watch the kind of players he brings in. He'll bring some real character yeah. in. Yeah. You know, if you look at some of Ancelotti's teams, the Milan teams and stuff, they were a little bit Sam Allardyce at times. They dig in some of those teams. Then when they get the ball, they can play. So imagine bringing that to Everton. Yeah. It could happen, yeah. couldn't Fingers it? Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Yeah, it could happen. It could easily happen. Easily. <laughs> And as you say, Michael, you know, they've now got the cash as well, which is, which is something that, you know, because I, I don't want to leave any sort of doubt in the minds of anybody watching this. I think both you and I share the view that despite those shortcomings, David Moyes' time at Everton Football Club w was definitely a success. No question. Well, listen, Frank, at the time when he was going to Man United, you know, he was going to sign for another five years with Bill. Yeah. You know, if that had happened and then and then the takeover comes, you know what I mean? You know, the changing hands comes. I'll tell you what, he was a if we'd have found the right number two for him, he could have taken it places because he had that strength of character yeah. underneath it all. So it's close, isn't it? It's yeah. fine margins in life, Frank, isn't it? Absolutely. Very much so. Fine margins. And then <clears throat> and you know, Manchester United are finding out how much turmoil they've had in the seven you know, it ain't been all rosy for them. You know what I mean? So it's not easy, is it, this? No. It, listen, sports as much as life uh, can turn on a coin, the flip of a coin, can't it? And, and of course it can. Of course it can. And, and sports knows it for footballs knows yeah, it. Yeah, of course it can. I was, I was disappointed with United with the way they handled him because, you know, if you think about it, if they just said, I'll tell you what, if it'd leave you. Leave your five-year contract. We're going to do great things here. You know, he would he would have stayed. So they weren't honest with him. They weren't fair with him. Yeah. Uh, but he behaved with dignity as usual, as as he always will do and would do. Uh, and hopefully one day he'll be welcomed back there because I know he'd love to go. On. I mean, Moisey was always one of those people he only ever wanted after Everton left for them to be brilliant. You know, he never would have wished any harm on anyone or anything yeah. like that because uh, he's a class guy, wonderful guy. You know. And uh, as you say, hopefully be, he'll be viewed as that in the future. Yeah, and I'm sure history will be we'll captured to him than the immediate past, as, as often happens with... with uh, I hope so. Michael, <coughs> last football story... A good man. He's a good man, you know. Yeah. Last football story I want you to talk about, and, and I'm not going to end on football because uh, the, there's a particularly okay. story of mine that I'm going to turn to before we end. Um, but as you mentioned, uh, yesterday... Okay. It's a special anniversary in your uh, your fabulous career. Tell us about the Wigan Athletic FA Cup win. Frank, when I was a kid, when I was 16, I was signed by Blackburn Rovers. So I played in the youth team, uh, two games for the reserves, you know. I was, it was a very short career, but I was a centre forward. And of course, what do you dream of? You dream of winning the FA Cup, you know. And now we got to the semi-final with Bolton. As you know very well, with Everton, we got to semi-finals and a final against Chelsea, so we got close. And in 2013, we played Wigan Athletic, and we were red-hot favourites. And I tell you what, we played all right, but they were unbelievable that day. They beat us 3-0 at Goodison. Yeah. And afterwards, we got talking to Martinez, um, and he was dead interested in what I did. I had lunch with him 
in Manchester at the hospital where they all go for their medicals um, near the Heineken Brewery in Manchester. Fantastic place. And, uh, and he said, look, he said, I've spoken to Moisey, and I was still working for Everton then, but he said, for the FA Cup semi-final, come and work with us. Just give us a day of your time. And I went and had a day with them, and it was brilliant. I had a day with them. They were playing Millwall in the semi-final, beat them 4-0. But it was one of those games, Frank, could have been a banana skin. They could have lost, you know. So, so, just, so beating Millwall 4-0 was a massive statement for the lads. And then he phoned me afterwards and said, come and do another day before the final. So I did another day with them before the final. Um, and all, and I, listen, there's loads of stuff. I could talk all afternoon just about that. But the one story I tell is that we had the, and it was his idea, he had the wall in the canteen. By the way, their canteen is a porter cabin, right? Seriously, it was. So in this porter cabin, he had a wall decorated with a giant picture of the, of the team celebrating a goal. And on it, it said, famous FA Cup final victories. And there was like 1973. Leeds United nil, Sunderland won. 19, and then it went on. Give me some others. Um, Liverpool, Leeds Wimbledon. United, Liverpool nil, Wimbledon won, right? Yeah. Everton, Manchester United. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Score? Yeah. One nil. One nil, right? Uh, Arsenal, West Ham. Yeah. West Ham won yeah. one nil. Yeah. So, they, so all the shock victories where the little guy had won. They were all 1-0. Every single one was 1-0. And at the bottom, it said 2013, Manchester City nil, Wigan Athletic won on the wall in the canteen where they were eating the lunch all week. And, and I did my day study in front of this wall with the team. And we finished, and it was on the BBC website this week, was I made all the team write down one thing about why they were proud to walk out with every other member of the squad that was in that room, the physios, the fitness men, why were you proud to walk out at Wembley with them? You should have seen some of the things they wrote down. I mean, some of them were just crosses and pictures, but a lot of them wrote down really lovely things about each other, including Martinez, everybody. And then what happened was, all the ones, say you were number 17 and you were Frank McKenna, we cut all the sheets of paper up that they'd written on, and all the Frank McKenna envelopes, uh, comments went in one envelope. And the night before the final, while you were out at dinner, that was shoved, we shoved it under your door. So you came back from dinner at half nine or whatever, and you opened the door, and there was an envelope on the floor, what's this? And in it was like 29 statements about why these people were proud to be, and lucky to be walking out alongside you. How awesome is that? And I tell you what, we all knew it was going to be 1-0, and when we got that corner in the 93rd minute, there was no doubt in anyone's mind where that ball was going and what's really lovely is that the lad who scored the goal uh, Ben he'd broken his leg early in the season and he was making a comeback from that and you know it was just all one of them it was written it was written but I'll tell you what that is an FA Cup story Frank so to, for me as a failed footballer to get to hold the FA Cup and to get me picture taken with it and send it to me mum you know mum you know it happened well it doesn't get better than that does it Wigan Athletic beating Manchester City. Come on. Impossible. Only if you think so. Only if you think so. So it was a great day, mate, really. Great day. I only did two days with them. That was it, you know, because I was working with Moisey at Everton. Yeah, yeah. Um, but two days I'll never forget. And, you know, me photograph holding the FA Cup on my mum's wall still in her living room. You know, brilliant. A little boy got to hold the FA Cup. Great story. Great story.
Uh, and mate, again, just before I leave that particular story, Roberto obviously then became manager of Everton. I think partly on the back of the performance at Goodison, but of course the FA Cup win on his CV didn't do him any harm. Yeah, didn't do any harm, no. What, what, did, did you get to, to know Roberto particularly well? Well, <clears throat> I had to make a... He, he, he still comes to... Well, he used to come to a restaurant in our village. So I used to see him all the time in a big... There's a fantastic restaurant near where we live. Yeah, and he, him and his wife used to... Yeah. Yeah, so he used to come, he used to come from up to, to see or to, to go to this restaurant. So I got to know him personally really well from, through that. Um, but of course, what happened at the time when he came to Everton, I was going to Man United with Moise. So I, and I would only work for what I, you know, I could have worked for him, but I, I could only work for one really. Yeah. And, and, you know, for me to do nine years with David, I just wanted to help him with this six-year contract, make a go of it at United. Um, and, uh, and, you know, probably for a lot of the wrong reasons. Long reasons that wasn't the greatest call of my life ever, but you know what a hell of a what a hell of a ride we had. And and Roberto again, you see, Martinez would have been a good foil for Moyes, you know. Yeah. Do you know what I mean in terms of a personality style, yeah. a different, gentle, soft, lovely human being. He just would have been warmer around the lads. Moyes was hard around the lads, you know. So that might have been good. And he, but but what I think Roberto, this is only my opinion. What Roberto didn't have was Roberto couldn't send out a team and get a clean sheet. You yeah. couldn't have one nil wins with Roberto. Whereas with Moyes, that's what you got. Imagine putting that together with his flair and his beautiful football and Moyes behind you saying, you can see the goal, you're walking home. You know, it would have been perfect, wouldn't it? Um, so we dream about these things and uh, still hope that you'll have it with Ancelotti. You'll find your man who'll combine. It's not that easy to do, but you've got the right man now. Fingers you've got the right man. Fingers crossed. Yeah, you're the right man. The, the point you make about Martinez and Moyes, you know, arguably that first season when Martinez had a fabulous... Hunt, yeah, he did. You know, fifth, yeah. fifth in the league, close to getting Champions League spot. And I would argue that was a combination of a David Moyes, Roberto Martinez side. Because I agree, Howard I agree. He's back four. Tim Howard was still in goal. And what... Martinez added was just that little bit of panache through people like Lukaku. He brought Theo yeah. in and, and one or two others. Barkley was just coming into the side. Perfect, isn't it? And whereas, again, you, you mentioned earlier David's caution, Roberto was happy to give Ross Barkley his head. He was happy <clears> to <throat> say to Delafeo in the last 20 minutes of a game, yeah, go on and do some damage as a sub. Lukaku, Absolutely. Only, you know, now he's, he's a renowned centre-forward. At the time, he's only a boy. Brought him in yeah. on And then I thought the masterstroke, actually, from Roberto Martinez with that team was, was Gareth Barry. Because, again, oh, yeah. talk about leaders, Michael. Yeah. And you had, you know, you had Jagielka, you had Distan. Brilliant. And then you had Brilliant. in the middle of midfield. And yeah. And Howard yeah. himself, no, no shirker, as you know. Clever. Um, so, oh. as a combination. Oh, it's clever, what, isn't it? What a team that was. But then it fell apart when Moisey's back yeah. four aged, moved on, and he was never able to replicate the success exactly. in season one. Yeah. So, so great point that yeah, you... Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that first season was fantastic, wasn't it? You know, he could have carried that on. It would have been awesome. But as I say, I'm thinking Ancelotti, you've got a manager who can do both. Yes. And they're few and far, beto- they're few and far between. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he will... Every, one of the things I remember saying to Sam Allardyce early on at Bolton is that every organisation becomes the extended shadow of one person. Every organisation becomes the extended shadow of one person. So our Bolton team was Sam Allardyce. 
You know what I mean? Now, with Everton, can become the extended shadow of Carlo Ancelotti. That's going to be one heck of a shadow. Absolutely. That's going to be one heck of a shadow. And, you know, what I would want Everton fans to do is to dream big. Yes. And to say, you know what? Give us three years. Why not? Why not? Because yeah. I don't see a reason. I seriously, and I'm not talking about as an Evertonian here. I'm talking as a, as a pragmatist saying, why not? Yes. Why can't you? There's no reason. None at all. So stick with the guy, back him, you'll be up there. But you've got to dream big like he will. Yeah. You've got to believe it too. Yeah. And I think sometimes people don't want to believe it because they don't want to be let down again. You know, well, put that cynicism to one side and be a dreamer yeah. for the next three years because good times are coming, I think. You've got the right guy. Seriously, do. Come on, Everton. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, that'll be music to the ears of Evertonians. But I want, <laughs> I want to put the, the football away. Uh, and I okay. want to get on to my favourite of stories and there's many of them that you tell me over the years mate I, I said to Bob Latchford this morning I could keep you on for three hours and, and the same with you Michael uh, <laughs> keep you on all day because I know that you could regale us with some fantastic tales of the work that you've undertaken um, but it's the golf story and it's oh. it's the Darren Clark because um, you know Jimmy White was a problem um, but Clark he you know, he, he had different issues to address, didn't he? He did. Well, I mean, you know, Darren, of, of course, what he went through with Heather dying of cancer and, you know, bringing up two boys, Tyrone and Connor, on his own and then, you know, sinking to world number 150 with all that talent. Hardly anybody, Frank, hit at his peak, hardly anybody hit the ball better than Darren Clark. So for him to be languishing at world number 150, you know, having had his wife die and, you know, sacrifice his time with his boys, what a hole he was in. Um, so to have him come back and hold, you know, take that championship trophy home to Port Rush in Northern Ireland and literally walk through the front door and give it to his two little boys, Tyrone and Connor. Uh, and Tyrone, the elder one, the sensitive one, burst into tears. And Connor just ran around the room with it, the young one. You know, the young ones are always mad, aren't they? Big smile on his face. It was just, that was on the BBC. It was fantastic. So what actually happened with us, Frank, is I started working with him in 1998. That phone call from Chubby Chandler led me into a contract with him. Darren was world number 35, right, at the time, 29 years old. Within 18 months, he was world number seven. And he beat Tiger Woods over 36 holes in the World Match Play Championship, three and two, to walk away with a check with a million dollars. Now, that's when you've, you've had a good day at the office, you know. <laughs> and we've, we've had 18 months, he finished European number two, World number seven. There was only Montgomery could beat him in you. You know, just finished in front of him in the order of merit. Um, wouldn't how many God knows how many Ryder Cups, Darren. And what happened was, I was on a like Bolton Wonders. I was on a percentage with him in the first two seasons. I did one and a half seasons, and at the end of the full season, uh, when he came to write me the check, Chubby Chandler said, "This is disgusting. How much money we owe you?" I said, "Hang on a minute. It's your contract. You, you, I just signed it. You know." So they want to creep out of it. So, of course, they pay it because they have to. But then they don't want to renew. Well, by then, I had Bolton Wanderers. You know, we'd, we'd beat Tiger Woods in the World Match Play. I didn't need to work with Darren Clark now. I had what I wanted out of it. You know, I was happy. So I said, well, I don't need you either. Let's go our separate ways. So in, 19, in the year 2000, we went our separate ways. Um, and we never worked with each other again. And I'd still see him occasionally, you know, uh, around and always be friendly. We're always friendly. But he just thought... I should have taken like a 75% wage cut is what he wanted me to take. And I just said, no, I don't need it. Uh, don't need, who needs that? You know? Um, and then in 2000 and 
11, he got to world number 150. He hadn't won a tournament for three and a half years. Uh, he was 42. He was fat and he was finished. So what do you do then? When you've tried everything else, you phone Finnegan. I've tried everything else and nothing. So I am, the, I am beneath the bottom of the barrel. I've got no illusions about that. And, he, and Chubby Chandler phoned me and said, Darren's asked if you'll work with him again. And I said to him, well, I think we've got some unfinished business there because didn't we say we'd win a major? And Chubby just laughed and said, yeah, we, we did. So I said, go on then. This was April 2011. The Open Championships in July, right? We went, I flew to Port Rush. Uh, I took a book with me because I always carry me, me workbooks. I took a workbook with me, Michael Finnegan's workbook. I always carry them. And I took it and I took him through it all. And he said, I forgot about this. I forgot about this. I forgot, I forgot, I forgot, I forgot, I forgot. Yeah. So we didn't do anything new. All we did was did what got us to world number seven. Ten, what was that, 12 years earlier or whatever. Uh, he hadn't won for three and a half years. The next tournament was in Mallorca. All the top stars were playing in it. Darren Clark won by five shots. <laughs> now then, was that a coincidence? I've no idea. <laughs> Who knows? It could well have been. And f about five weeks later, he went to the Open Championship and he absolutely murdered it. And I've got to say, Frank, of all the things we've done, you know, all the things we've been privileged to be involved with, Olympic gold medals, Cricket World Cups, you know, FA Cup, you name it. Having Darren Clark win the Open Championship at the age of 42, when he'd been through all that with Heather, you know, his wife dying of cancer, bringing up two boys on his own, that, that takes some beating. That takes some beating. That man at the age of 42 winning that was emotional um, and wasn't a dry eye in the house. And I told, I mean, my daughter said to me on the Thursday, Dad, is he going to win? And I said, of course he's going to win. He's working with me. And she put 10 quid on at 250 to one. <laughs> I could have got arrested if anybody had found out that. <laughs> she won two and a half grand on Darren winning the Open Championship. Frankie, it was awesome. And even if you weren't a golfer, you know, just the human yeah. story. And we sat having a pint. We sat having a pint after. And I said to him, they'll make a film of this, Darren. They'll make a film of this. And we were laughing about it. And I said, and uh, Jude Law will play me. I don't want you talking about Jude Law. Don't be so stupid. You know? <laughs> and, and I said, they'll find a big fat bloke to play you. <laughs> 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 and we just laughed and drank Guinness. And you know what? How cool is that? You know, so Wigan Athletic winning the FA Cup. Brilliant story. Darren Clark at the age of 42. Being the get best golfer in the world on his day. Awesome. Awesome. Not a bad hobby for me. It's been fantastic to uh, re-listen to some of those stories. <laughs> and listen, get, yeah, always get some new information out of you whenever we have these. <laughs> well, they're big stories, aren't they? You could yeah. talk for a day about one story. Yeah. That's the trouble. Absolutely. But, but I'll tell you, mate, um, you know, people listening into this now will be thinking, yeah, that's fantastic. He's done all that great work with these sports people. Uh, but they're all special people. They've all got special talent. I can't dream that big. Now, you just very briefly mentioned um, you work with some corporates. And, of course, what you do, it, what you do, mate, is, is you don't just unblock the drains of sports people. You unblock the drains of, you know, big corporate entities, but also individuals that I know. I mean, I, listen, I, we ain't got time to, to tell all the tales. I know of a homeless guy that you've picked up oh. on the street. 
and turns into a bloody successful artist. Yeah. I hear stories about people that you've worked with. You have turned their lives around. So just a message to the downtown members who will be tuning in, watching this, obviously dreaming about a day when they might have won the FA Cup in bygone times. But listen, yeah. there's no reason why you've got to limit your ambition and aspiration, is there? No, come on. Frank, what happens is people let the circumstances dictate the thinking. They let circumstances dictate the thinking. Wrong. Thinking dictates circumstances, right? So it all the battles are won in here. Every, and even now, and we said this earlier on, more so now, Frank, than ever. People need to say, listen, whatever's going on outside, fine. I didn't ask for it. I can't control it, but I'm not putting up with it. I'm not having it. And when this brave new world is formed, there will be a seat at the table for me, and it will be a fantastic seat. Do you know what? I don't know exactly where it is. I don't know exactly what it looks like, but do you know what? It's going to be amazing. And you have to think like that now when, when it isn't amazing, when it's horrendous. And don't come to me for a sob story and a sympathy. I've not got any because none of us is coming through this unscathed, right? So whatever sob story you've got, mine's twice as bad. And the fellow over there is twice as bad. So don't come for that. Just come with your new thinking that makes you create the world you want around you. Give yourself a few months. Give yourself 12 months to do it. But start feeling it today. Sam Allardyce behaved like a Premier League club when he was bottom of the championship. Do you get my message? You have to do that. And that's what Ancelotti's going to have to do to attract people to Everton. To say, hey, we're going to be the number one club in Europe. Come and join now. Get in early on this revolution. That's, you have to see it. People say, um, don't they? Seeing is believing. No, no. Believing is seeing. People have to believe it now. And when you believe it, you'll see it. So, Frank, nobody's exempt from that. The downtown members. And, you know, what's lovely about being under your leadership in terms of downtown is that you embody that philosophy. So you, you bring that home to people all the time. <clears throat> but remember, make your thinking this dictate your circumstances, not the other way around. That's what I'd say. Uh, that applies to everybody. That's a great message to end on, my friend. Come on, mate. <laughs> yeah. And I can't wait to be having a Guinness with you in the not-too-distant oh. future. Anytime. Hopefully so. Anytime. And a hug. I'm a can of hug. That's what I need. <laughs> and a kiss. And a kiss. And a kiss, of course, yeah. <laughs> You're a top man, mate. It's always great to speak to you. And we'll see you very soon. Thanks as always. See you soon, you. mate. Come on, downtown. Top man. Thanks, my mate. <laughs>